Lovely to see you here. I'm Michael. I'm one of the clergy here at uh, HCC. Um, and Giving Sunday, the one Sunday of the year we talk about money. So if you're a guest, welcome. Um, if you're um, you know, just visiting from another church, I really hope this is a blessing uh, that you'll be able to go back to your church next week and be like, whew, don't have to sit through that again. And if you're just a guest checking out church in general, welcome. Do sit back, uh, relax. Enjoy, and I really hope that something that I can say can kind of inspire you to ask questions. That's what I really want to do. So I thought I'd give us a mode, like a road map, which will help me. Um, Jago is going to ask for your money uh, in about 25 minutes' time. <laughs> Thankfully, it won't be me. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And, um, and so before then, my job, I think, is to prepare all of our hearts for that moment. That's where we're going. We're gonna, I'm going to preach, and then we're going to respond with song, and then Jago's going to get up. So that's kind of where we're going. And what I really want to do is I want to frame it in a story. And the story ends with a question, and then I'm going to ask that question to all of us. So that's where we're going. So if you'd like to grab a Bible kind of at the end of your um, rows, we're, we're carrying on. Last week, we were in 1 Corinthians 3, and this week, we're just doing the following passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and you can find it on page 1146. 1146. But what I want to do is I want to frame it in this story about a husband and a wife. Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. Now, I want you to picture with me the scene. Priscilla and Aquila, they're driven out of Rome when Judaism, the practice of Judaism, becomes illegal. And they return to the area of their birth. They leave... Hello? They leave the capital of the world, Rome, and they move to this city. They move to Corinth. Now, you've you got, you got a picture with me, these, this couple. They are committed workers. They're tent makers by background. So they set up a shop, and they are successful. We know they're successful because they have a big enough house to have lots of guests and eventually have a church. So here they are, working away, following Yahweh. And enters the scene Paul. Now, Paul is much more famous than Priscilla and Aquila. Paul was this devout Jew who went around the country kind of trying to kill and imprison Christians. And he meets Jesus on the original Damascus Road experience. And his whole life is radically changed. So he goes around telling people about Jesus. And he's very strategic in how he does it. He basically goes to really important cities and he goes to the synagogue and he basically says, Jesus was crucified for you. That's basically how he goes about his business. And Corinth is no distant. He walks into Corinth. Now, by background, Paul is a tent maker. And he was a Jew. So it doesn't take long for him to meet our couple. And Priscilla and Aquila, they welcome him into their home. And they become friends. Eventually, they become like family. And Paul ends up working for them. It's an incredible thing. Picture with me. This couple, they're just, they're just doing what they've got to do. They're working hard. They're trying to serve Yahweh, their God. And then the most divisive figure at the time walks into town and they become friends with him. So Paul does what he always does. He kind of goes around preaching about this crucified Christ. Now, we need to understand a little bit about Corinth to see how controversial that actually was. 
Now, many of you will have kind of had a look at the back of the Bible when you've been bored one Sunday, and you've been asking, why are there maps in the back for this moment? Okay, so if you'd like to keep a finger in, in, in Corinth and go to the back page, and there is a map. And right in the middle is Greece. You'll be able to see Athens, and to the left is Corinth. And it's a strategic Roman colony. Now, what had to do, if you wanted to go from east to west or west to east, you had to sail 400 miles all the way around Greece. But what you could do is you could sail right up to Corinth. You could unload all of the cargo and slaves would walk all of the cargo four miles across land. And then they'd just get dumped onto another boat and sail out. It was an incredibly strategic city, and it blossomed, and it grew, and it became a kind of center of culture and finance. It was an incredible city. And Corinth, this this Roman um, colony, it was built to kind of foster the majesty of Rome and her culture, her religion, and her values. Built upon this foundation of Rome, where public status and power were honored. One's own honor was entrenched in the livelihood of its people. This was a city that was built on trade, money, and entrepreneurial pragmatism. Combine this, this kind of successful city, with the everyday practice that was that surrounded the people. Temples were built all over the city. And the most impressive and the most important was in the West End, the temple to the imperial cult. Now, there everyone used to go to the temple of the imperial cult where they would worship Caesar. Not Caesar the man, but Caesar who was God incarnate. Wisdom personified. And the key God that was holding society together, they they basically worshipped lots of different gods. You had gods for everything. But the key God holding it all together was the imperial cult, where all of society were expected to rejoice in sacrificing to that God. So, you've got the foundation of this city. And the practice of the living. You've got power and money and wealth. And then you've got all these other gods. And you can sum up the wisdom of Corinth with this kind of stoic philosophy. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be happy? And to be happy, you had three things. You needed to be filled. And what that meant was every desire that was in you was given over to you. You were filled with all the desires of your heart. And it usually talked about sex and money. Two big desires. So you had to be filled. You had to be rich in wealth, and you had to reign. Usually it was talking about men. You had to reign in your household. You had to be king of your household, king of your area, king of your financial success. You had to reign. You had to be filled, you need to be rich, and you need to reign. That is the wisdom of Corinth. Okay, let's go back to our story. You've got this couple. Paul's now in their house, and they let him work for him. Priscilla and Aquila, they become Christians, and others join them. And Paul then stops making tents, and he basically goes into full-time preaching. And this is hard ground. The Jews don't like him, and then he's coming along preaching this one-God gospel in a world of anything and everything goes. People become Christians. 
the church begins to flourish. And then Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila leave the city. They love the city they've invested. And they go and plant a church in Ephesus. Eventually, they bring Ephesus to a riot. But that's a story for another time. So, bearing all this in mind, Corinth is a city of power and money. Corinth is this epicenter of worship of gods as numerous as the people where you must be filled, rich, and reign. In the midst of that, you have a group of Christians. What happens to that church? What happens to those Christians? Well, let's compare it with the Christians in Rome. Christians in Rome were called haters of humankind. That's how they were referred to. Can you imagine, people? if you're a Christian, people, that's how we're referred to at Haiti. You are haters of humankind. And that's because the Christians there rejected the imperial God. And to reject the imperial, regard, imperial God was to reject society. And if you rejected society, you rejected humanity. What was Corinth like? Corinthian society, was a, there was an oppressive divide between rich and poor. In the church, the rich who hosted the small home groups put themselves above the poor to such a degree that when they came to take communion, the rich would eat all the food and drink all the wine and not leave any for the poor. In society, Corinth was all about power. In the church, they were suing each other, taking each other to the legal courts for power in the church. Corinthian society was approved of basically every sexual practice, especially in the temples and the fertility cults. In the church, Paul says this, there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. In society, there were different groups of fractions depending on what God you supported. In the church, they worshipped the same God, and yet they hated each other so much, they gave themselves different names depending on who they were aligning themselves to. The society was all about personality and gifting and financial prowess. And the church decided that if you did something up front, or you did something that seemed to be spiritual, you were above everyone else because God valued you more than everyone else. The problem is not that there was a church in Corinth. The problem is that too much of Corinth was in the church. And into this environment, Paul writes the vision of Christian living. And we unpacked that last week, that we want to grow out and we want to grow up for the glory of Jesus. We must be a church here, all of us, that is healthy, faithful builders and radical disciples if we are to even begin our vision of supporting churches and planting other churches. So whilst our context might be different than the Corinthians, the foundation is the same. Paul says all Christians and the church are God's field, building, and temple. Then Paul poses this question to the church. How will you respond? And he's going to give two options. 
He's going to use himself and Apollos, who's another Christian leader, and he's going to give the Corinthian church as the other. Are you going to live a life that's Christ-centered, or are you going to live a life that's Corinthian-centered? And he prefaces this response. Have a look with me. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This then, on page 1146, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and of those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. What he's saying here is no one can know what's going on in your heart. So I'm not going to judge you. But it's important how you respond to God. Have a look at me at that end of verse 5. At that time, at the end, each will receive their praise from God. How you have lived has incredible rewards. You will receive the praise from God. When all darkness is brought to light, all untruth and half-truth is magnified, have you actually lived in response to God? And then he's saying, I'm not judging you, I'm just asking you. Then, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of the one of us over against the other. I've applied these things to Apollos and I. We've been faithful, and we wait for God's judgment on the way we live. Now, here's the problem. He's saying this about the Corinthian church. You're not actually living as a Christian. You're so confounded by Corinth, you're more Corinthian than Christian. Now you remember the teaching of Corinth, the wisdom of Corinth, filled, rich, reigning. Let's have a look at verses 7 and 8. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not Already you have all you want, you're filled. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us, without the Christian message. How I wish you had really begun to reign so that you might also reign with you. There it is. You have all these things. You're filled, you're rich, and you reign. You are kings. And he's not judging them, he's highlighting because he's already addressed these issues in the earlier part of the letter. You're filled while well, Christ gave up everything. You're rich while well, Christ is poor. You reign while well, Christ the King gave up absolutely everything. And he hung naked on the cross, which is absolute foolishness to everyone. So if Christ gave up everything, was poor, and died a peasant prisoner death, and Corinth is about being filled rich and reigning, which one do you look like you follow? That's what he's saying to them. And then he's going to unpack it. Some of these are very strong, but this is what he... Let's read from verse 9 together. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. 
We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated and we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. So then the question posed to all of us, does our lives look like Christ or Corinth? And look, I'm going to be honest with you because I've had to wrestle with this for weeks. My heart longs to be like a Corinthian. I want to be loved. I want to be liked. I desperately want to be rich. And I was trying to, I was trying to, I was trying to think of this. It's true. I was trying to think of how, how, how we could move from kind of out there to kind of draw it in. And I'm going to use an example of my four-year-old son. But what I'd love for you to do is to kind of picture someone else you care about. Okay? I want you to imagine in 20 years' time, you see my son. He's four now. And you say, Theo, tell me, what was your daddy's relationship like with Jesus Christ? And he says, wouldn't it be awful if he said something like, You know, he was a wonderful father, and he encouraged me very much. And he loved mummy, and he loved my sister so much. But Jesus, do you know what? He never gathered us around the table and said, we need to see Jesus work in our lives. You know what? He planted a church, but to be totally honest, he didn't look or sound anything different from all the other daddies at my school. Wouldn't that just sit that he would just say, I literally couldn't see Christ in his life. It was all Corinth. Every area of our lives needs to be put under consideration. But today, we're talking primarily about money. And the biggest issue I found as, as, as we've been grappling with this as a, as a, as a family is we think we can kind of sum it up that the culture around us gives enough to appease their conscience. And Emma and I, we've been wrestling with this because we've realized we've fallen into that trap. What can I give that is the absolute minimum so that our lives don't differ from everyone else around us? But if we lived our lives with that mindset, well, that doesn't look like Christ at all. It doesn't look like Christ's motive when he gave himself up for me. It doesn't look like Christ's motive when he died for me. So then the question that's now in the room, the elephant in the room is, well, how much? Go on, preacher, tell us how much. If I want to be like Christ and not like Corinth, tell us. How much? Where does the swing happen? But surely that's the wrong question. If it's a response to this vision of Christian living, the question is, how much can I give? If I can't outgive Christ, and he gave everything, and I want to be a part of that vision, I want to live a life for Christ, it's not how much should I give, it's how much can I give. That's what it means to be, to have a, to be sacrificially giving. 
Now look, I'm not going to insult any of you now by listing what South London wants us to spend our money on. You, you know, we all get enough of that in our inbox. You know, I know, we all know. And so if we exchange bank statements, and you read mine and I read yours, does anyone, do you think about it like this, if, you, if I read yours, do you think I would come to the conclusion that you're more like Christ or more like Corinth? That's what we're dealing with, how we spend our money, if we all know what South London wants us to spend our money on. Do we live a life like Corinth or like Christ? So now you might say, well, hold on, smart ass, with your Corinthian history and your Corinth and Christ, and it begins with a C, so we all know where it's going. Are you more like Clapham or Christ? And, and do you know what I mean? It's gift Sunday. You know, you're thinking, hold on a minute. You've got to do better than that, because that question is a non-starter. You're sitting there going, hold on a minute. Paul, who's one of the greatest thinkers the world has ever known, and Apollos, who was one of the great orators of his generation, they're going around planting churches. That's a non-starter. I'm not doing that. Don't, if, of course I'm not going to look like that. Of course if that's the kind of extreme, then of course I'm going to look like Corinth. You've got to do better than that. Okay, let's finish the story with Priscilla and Aquila. Let's fast forward a few years. Paul is about to make one of his strategic moves to Rome. He's about to use Rome as a launch pad to go west. So before he goes, he writes this massive letter to them. And he basically is saying, look at how amazing God is. Look at what God has done. Isn't it all very exciting? I'm coming and it's going to be amazing. And many of us have read those first 15 chapters. And it's an incredible kind of story of everything that God has done. And he's preparing the way. And he wants to get them excited. So he's not going to kind of praise people that are not living for Christ. Now, in chapter 16, verses 1 to 2, the first person he praises is Phoebe. Phoebe is carrying the letter. Chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, who is the first people in the front of the whole Christian community in Rome? Who is the first people he praises? Priscilla and Aquila. They've now left Ephesus, and they've moved back to Rome, where they are loving the church community. Flick five pages back um, to um, chapter 16 of Romans, 1143. And I think this is important because for many of us, we're not looking at Paul and Apollos. We're actually looking at, well, hold on a minute. I'm just a tent maker. I have a job and I have a life. How am I really going to compare being like Corinth or Christ? Well, listen to what he says about Priscilla and Aquila. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the church of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Two incredible things that we need to note. Chapter 4, they risked their lives for me, that these two, this couple, were radical disciples of Jesus. They lived more for Christ than for Corinth, and they did it while being rich. Secondly, he says this, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Now, you and I, we've, if you're a Christian, you, someone has told you about Jesus. 
right? And someone told them. It's called the kind of legacy, right? Someone told them, someone told them, someone told them. And because most of us are not Jewish, our kind of, we can trace it all the way back to these early Gentile churches. So Paul, at this, in this passage, is basically saying, you and I, we need to be grateful to two tent makers who chose to live their life more for Christ than they did for Corinth. And they lived their lives for Christ rather than Corinth in every area of their life, with their time, with their home, and certainly with their money. I thought it'd be good if we could um, sing a response song before Jago comes and speaks to us. But I think all of us, all, all of us, I hope all of us, take, take a moment, take some time to ask ourselves, in every area of our lives, especially with our money, do we reflect Corinth or Christ? Can I invite you to stand? The band are going to come, and I'm going to pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. That your church, over all generations, has had people who are faithful, who long to live their lives for you and not for Corinth. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and do a work in the hearts and minds of each and every one of us. That we would desperately long to live for you. We thank you for the example of Priscilla and Aquila who opened their homes, who went and helped with early churches, who were faithful witnesses in their industry and in the church. We ask, Heavenly Father, would you move us? And that as we are moved, we would want to glorify you and you alone. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.